What's good, dudes? It's your boy, the Vishermang of letting them stand and bang. And I'm here with the Spokes and Chokes podcast. It is the November 8th of 2022. And we're going to talk about fights. We're going to get recapped because I skipped a week because the fights were slow and my life wasn't. So we're going to get ourselves caught back up again. As well as we're going to talk about some BMX. We're going to talk about Jake Paul versus Anderson Silva and the fact that that is not nearly as depressing as some people feared it would be. And uh, but so let's jump right into it. So I'm going to start with BMX because I haven't talked about it in a while on this thing. And uh, to be frank, we're going to start with positive shit and stuff that I'm quite frankly very biased about, as I rep cult pretty hard and I'm on the AM team. Uh, Vish, Robbie, and all the cult boys are really, like, around Halloween time, just, like, did a bunch of cool shit, dropped a bunch of cool shit, and the timing was on point for, like, both the little trip video they put out from, like, San Francisco area and kind of Northern California area, as well as dropping the new Vans tire, which I've been on some samples for a while, and I really like it as well as having a little promo thing with some DAC footage to promo the tire, which, like, what better way to promo a tire than to have the Wall Ride King doing the promo video and just, like, kind of, like, consecutively, like, dropping those things, like, either a day or two apart, as well as putting on Cultaween and having a little premiere at Cultaween. I'm super bummed I couldn't make it, but, like, as always, you can't predict what goes on and life gets in the way and shit's a little crazy. I still haven't like started my new job since moving over here to Reno, so like life's been just kind of crazy. But regardless, they've been killing it and it's been awesome. So, And then the second thing I want to talk about is fucking Mikey Andrew. He's been a friend of mine for a while now and he was hell like came to the Burgess Halloween jam at Burgess skate park in Reno and him as well as Jacob Bray put on the Halloween jam, which was an awesome time. It always is. And they did a great job. Got a bunch of, you know, sponsors to give product away. Like, you know, Vans bicycle center is like the primary contact for like helping us out with jams and stuff and like glenn that glenn at that bike shop has been the absolute man when it comes to any sort of events that like we want to do here in this scene so like whether it be northern california or the reno scene like glenn at the vans bike shop unrelated to van shoes um has just been like the absolute best and one of the best driving forces behind the bmx scene up here and uh, him and then, like, all the sponsors, like, Robbie sent some stuff and uh, from Colt and, like, there was S&M and Fit stuff and, like, a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, and I'm not trying to brag, but it definitely, like, felt like a lifelong accomplishment to win the Burgess Jam game of bike. Because, like, the first time I even came to California, like, the first people I met that were BMX riders since moving back to America in 2011 was the dudes at the Burgess Jam. That was the first thing I did 
and like getting introduced to like how they set up like a game of bike between like a fuckload of people and like how much fun that can be and like just running down this like long ass line of like 30 dudes on the deck all trying the same trick like it's an awesome time and i weirdly feel i weirdly felt like it was almost like a a lifelong goal achieved weirdly um <laughs> that might be a mild exaggeration but it was i was stoked on it um but enough about me i don't want to talk about me on this shit i want to talk about other things that i think are cool and i mainly brought this up because i want to talk about mikey andrew uh also milky bikes on instagram and he has been like killing it for a long time but over the last few years he like moved to socal and just really started being productive as fuck and was put and put out like fucking the opener part to the latest fit dvd which is my favorite part by far and just like is like showing like a level of creativity that like is a breath of fresh air in a lot of ways because he has a very unique style and a very like creative style that I love. And, um, and he's been productive as shit. And I really, I really hope that at the beginning of the fiscal year, um, fit takes a long, hard look at putting the dude on pro. Because having the opener to a DVD, especially one that is as good as his was, that should be a massive, like, showing of, like, hey, like, this dude deserves it. Especially because, like, if you look at the numbers, at least when I looked at them, which was a couple weeks ago, like, his viewership numbers on his part were really high compared to most of the other dudes. So, like, I just hope they get they throw that dude a bone because he fucking deserves it. Um, and then last thing for BMX for the week that was like kind of a big thing that kind of captured the imagination of the entire community was Julian Ortega. Um, Julian, uh, was removed from pro or like got kicked off the team, I believe of Eclat and subsequently made a statement about his experience with them and all of his various gripes and his personal experience with the brand and things like that. And uh, the biggest one that stood out to most people, like some of the other stuff that I, I could, you could understand that his complaints were like, it wasn't like earth shattering stuff where like, say, complaining about being able to get product or, you know, not being able to get a product in like, like getting product in like a weird color or things like that. And it's like, you can kind of chalk a lot of that stuff up to, well, it's an overseas brand and the communication is going to be iffy, especially dealing with like a language barrier because they're a German brand. And, you know, everybody that's going to be working over there overseas is probably going to have English be their like second language or at least like not as good as their German. So there's going to be, you know, various issues there or just generally a lack of communication Regardless of miscommunication, there might be just a general lack of communication, period, for things like, hey, like, I'd rather, like, saying things like, things in the hindsight that you should probably say, say if you get something that's like a shitty color you don't want, um, and you're, like, genuinely bummed about it, just hitting them up and being like, hey, man, like, 
I'd rather you hold off until you have the color I want in stock before sending it rather than sending the X thing. Or, you know, stuff like that. I mean, there's always just like, depending on the part, you can always just fucking spray paint that shit. Um, but regardless, um, the funny thing about that situation and the one that was like the biggest gripe was dealing was about his signature grip situation where basically he was talking to them about doing a signature grip sent a, a drawing to according to a claw their designer who worked with it and uh here's here's a claw side which funny enough a claw actually made like a response post after julian made his post with all his gripes about it um Eklat made a response post that was like this long ass, like super long winded thing about it. And basically like started talking about things of like, you know, hooking up riders is also like helping them with exposure and like this, that, the other thing, like just trying to basically like explain the sponsorship, like industry situ, like function as if, you know, to a kid who doesn't, who's never been in the industry and doesn't understand how it works. Um, now, funny enough, this post has been deleted since because I tried to find it. And the only way I could find it, and if you want to find it too, um, the best way to do it, at least the best way I found to do it, was to go on to Brant Moore's YouTube channel where he screenshotted all of the, you know, all the text and read through it uh, with all of the cloth statements back before they deleted their own post about it. Um and the best thing to do if you want if you want to read it yourself, either go on there, listen to him read it, or just, you know, pause it at each frame so you can like read it yourself. But um basically in that thing, they kinda dance around it a little bit, where they taught they say that Julian sent the sent the drawing, the designer messed with it, changed it. Julian supposedly didn't like the changes, and then communication just kind of halted instead of the designer like working with him and trying to like tweak it so to make to make him happy with it apparently the communication just kind of stopped and then x amount of time later the grip comes out uh almost exactly like the drawing which that time skip is what makes me very skeptical about their story where like making a new grip or a new product especially a new grip because you have to pay for the molds um, and it's like, it's not a slow, it's not a fast or inexpensive process. Like making a new, getting a new grip mold made is not like something that just kind of happens without you noticing. It's a very like sketchy situation where it's like, okay, so did you get those sample, get the sample back from your designer after that exchange and then just assume that Julian was cool with it and that everything was kosher and then went ahead and with production without talking to the dude to make sure everything was good. Like there's a lot of questions that their story brings up that uh, definitely make me a little skeptical overall. And of course the fact that they deleted their own post wouldn't, and I'm sure a big part of that was because whoever the employee at the company was that wrote it, definitely wrote it in a little a little sassy a little um a little unprofessional and i would almost say uh there's a little tinge of bitterness there not that there wasn't any bitterness in coming from julian but 
when you're the brand and you're the company that's talking about professionalism, when you open up your statement with, oh, well, I wish Julian was more professional about this, then devolve into um, skirting that line of being unprofessional yourself, I can understand why you would delete the, why they would have you delete the posting. Even if your side of the story is the correct one, assuming. At the end of the day, Julian's experience seems pretty negative. That's a bummer. And I hope wherever he goes next, he is satisfied with the situation and satisfied with how he's treated and all that sort of stuff. I've definitely had like overwhelmingly positive experiences with both with, you know, the guys that help me out right now with Robbie and Mike Gray at Space Brace is amazing. And then obviously Glenn at the Vans Bike Shop has been nothing but fantastic. Um, I've definitely had my relatively negative experience before with a brand, but it's not anything that's like worth airing out or worth really mentioning. It's nothing insane. Nothing super crazy. Just like, you know, if you see me in person, ask me about it and I'll be glad to talk to you about it, but I'm not going to make some big public statement about that shit on a podcast when I'm trying to mainly stay positive. And like I said, like I hope Julian gets hooked up with a brand that he's going to be really happy with and it's going to be happy with him and that everything's going to be kosher and uh, that Eklah moves, you know, learns from the experience and tries to communicate it, tries to communicate a little better, you know, because that's what seems like the main problem was is they just weren't communicating and made assumptions. So I hope the best for both sides and that obviously as the brand you're going to want to see this situation and see if there are things you can learn from. But let's move on from that. Let's get into some combat sports stuff because that's primarily what I talk about on this podcast. And it's what I kind of use to kind of distract myself from the rest of life and like other stuff. Especially I'm going to be talking about it a lot more and trying to be a little more frequent with this podcast through the next few months. Just because it'll be like shitty and cold and I won't get to ride as much. Um so I'm going to be definitely going a little bit harder on like technical analysis and like really getting into stuff when I'm doing this podcast and talking about fights. Um, so let's move on to Jake Paul versus Anderson Silva because let's get the garbage out of the way first. Let's get the stuff that like, I'm going to be honest here. There's a lot of garbage across the board with everything I'm talking about this week because there are two full UFC cards that are weird and have a lot of issues and are genuinely like I'm super fucking hopeful that this is not a continuous trend of how the fight cards are going to continue to go for the rest of the year um but we're going to start with the most like the least real thing really and uh we're going to talk about Anderson Silva versus Jake Paul and how, quite honestly, it's just a situation where it's learning to appreciate that Jake Paul has genuinely become a decent boxer. Um, this is the sort of fight that you would see on a boxing undercard, say, like, say, fifth, fourth, fifth from the top on an average boxing fight card. 
as just, here's a new prospect that's coming up, and we're going to give him this old man who's still a savvy veteran, and we're going to give him this guy just as a real test to see where he's actually at. It's very much like the last handful of fights that Tim Means has had. A comparison for this would be, say, Crone Gracie versus Cub Swanson. Crone Gracie was coming up and was this, like, you know, impressive young guy who had a pretty decent skill set, and we wanted to see how he would do against an aging veteran that physically might have a hard time keeping up with him, but is intelligent and has a lot of experience under him and has a lot of skill that his body may let him down, but technically he's going to be a serious test for this young guy. And that's very much what this fight was. Going into it, there was a lot of expectation of... Well, there was kind of expectation both ways. It was... Anderson Silva's too old, this young guy's going to knock him out, and then there was a lot of, well, Anderson Silva is too good, and Jake won't be able to touch him. There was a lot of both of those sort of things, and ultimately, it ended up kind of in the middle, because Anderson Silva actually looked really good. Um, Anderson Silva looked like Anderson Silva. Um, His head movement is still great, he's still really hard to hit, he's still very difficult to put out, and has slick, smart counter-punching, and he's just like a serious test for any young guy coming up. And a lot of people, myself included, um, kind of didn't think about all of his losses leading up to his transition into boxing and his fight with uh, Chavez Jr., because it's not like he only got beaten by wrestling or kicking or like other things. Like ultimately, like Anderson Silva, while he still has the skill in boxing, has slowed down. And he's only going to last so long doing the things that he always did. And I mean, the man is 47 years old. He's not the sort of guy to do like a Vitor or somebody to like just get juiced to the gills. You know, Anderson, he'll, you know... He's probably on TRT and stuff, but he's not like, it's not like he's just loading up on the gear so he can feel like he's young still. Anderson is only going to be so much of a physical force. And really, Jake just showed a lot of maturity in his young career in that he has learned a lot from his last handful of fights, as well as the fact that At the end of the day, if you really want to get good at boxing and you have a near indispensable amount of wealth that you can spend on training as often and as intensely as possible and having your, you know, having your own chef or diet and having your own strength and conditioning coaches and having your own, you know, coaching and at the absolute highest level if you want to get good at something and dedicate five years of your life to just becoming really good at it um boxing is a somewhat incomplex thing to do that with if you have the resources you know being able to not have to stress about money and just train all the time in the prime of your physical peak and not having to spend any of your durability or any of your like you know stores as in terms of injury and other things like not be not having to 
expend a lot of that just be just racking up a record so that you can get into being a professional boxer just getting through the amateurs and then getting through being a low-level pro you know and getting up to the point where you can actually make some money and actually be able to sustain yourself because if you look at actual boxing and you look at actual boxing cards and what people get paid it's people make that comparison with the ufc and like yeah the ufc absolutely underpays their fighters um but when you look at boxing and you see what undercard guys are getting paid, um, even the guys coming off the contender series who are on like, you know, 15 and 15 contract, I think it's, I think it's got bumped up to 15 and 15 contracts is the lowest that you're going to make in the UFC now. Um, even guys that are running on those contracts are still making more money than the guys at the bottom of boxing cards where the guy at the top of the card might be making two mil. You know, you've got guys making millions at the top of the card on a boxing card and then Odds are, like, say it's a 10-fight card, your bottom four guys are probably making, like, less than 20 grand. Like, that's how bad the pay disparity is based on where you are in the card. So Jake Paul deciding, like, okay, well, I have all this money and I can make all this noise. If I jump into boxing and just spend, like, three years just training it as hard as I can and trying to get good at this thing, and then I can jump in... I can jump straight in to being a pro if I call out the right people and, you know, you know, start off with just fighting nobodies coming from like basketball and shit just to get my name out there and then start fighting aging MMA fighters. Once I realize, once I get into a point where I'm pretty decent, it's kind of the perfect storm of how can you become a decent pro boxer that still, that can actually make some money without having to destroy your body to get there and without having to, you know, roll the dice with, well, can I stay undefeated for 20 fights? And then maybe a promoter is going to take a hard look at me. Um, that's just kind of the nature of how it works in boxing right now. It's like, if you're not an undefeated pro, if you're not an undefeated guy, if you're coming up the traditional way, they're not really going to look at you. They're not really going to give you a lot of time a day unless you're doing really amazing things. Um, so Jake jumping into this thing, it's like, well, he's kind of stacked the deck in his favor with being able to become a decent boxer and be able to like jump into this stuff at as high a level as he physically seems to be capable of right now in a way that won't be detrimental to his body and his future in the way that like grinding your way up through the ranks of the bottom of boxing is going to do. So it's like you see that and you see him doing what he's doing. You go, well, yeah, of course he's like a decent boxer. He spends, he's made the choice to spend a bunch of his, you know, ridiculous wealth and influence and all that stuff into this new passion of his. It makes sense that he'd at least be pretty decent. And He's decently athletically gifted, relatively bigger dude, and he's pretty explosive. And this fight showed you got to give Jake Paul at least some credit that he is a decently tough dude. And he faced a lot of adversity against Anderson Silva, especially in the first five rounds or so. He faced a lot of adversity against Anderson and got hit a lot. So at the end of the day, like regardless of what you think of the guy, like I think he's a bit of a dickhead, but like... Ultimately, you got to respect that he's willing to go in there with a legend and take a lot of hard shots and genuinely, like, really do what you have to do to 
earn respect as a fighter. For the fight itself, I very much appreciate it. And I'm not going to say I'm glad it happened, because ultimately what I would actually be glad at, glad of is if Anderson Silva was like a ridiculously wealthy man that never had to fight again. Ultimately, like our legends in MMA, a lot of them end up broke or having not being as well off as they should. I mean, Anderson, Anderson Silva is one of the greatest MMA fighters of all time. And he's here fighting Jake Paul for like a half mil or whatever it is. And you can't tell me that money's not a factor. And that's a bummer. Because this should be for Anderson. Now, he made it sound... And Now, bear in mind, it's not like Anderson Silva is like completely broke. Like, he clearly went into this, especially the press conferences, saying like he just enjoys fighting and is just happy to do it. But this fight was very much a like, but also he's getting paid good. That's definitely going to be a little bit part of the motivation behind it. The thing I found weird about it is Jake Paul is almost using it as a platform to shit talk the UFC specifically and big ups boxing as if boxing is like this great bastion of combat sports and that UFC is like evil in comparison. And it's like, well, if you want to really make money, you come over to boxing and it's like, no, actually it you've just set yourself up as the punchline for a bunch of aging MMA fighters careers who are not making the money that they should be making who just want a big payday before they retire. And now you're like, you're the guy that they're all calling out and all being like, Ooh, well, I'll go, I'll go beat that dude's ass, blah, blah, blah. Especially when it's dudes that, like, were never, for the most part, were never terribly good boxers. That's what made it so intriguing to see Anderson Silva doing it, because Anderson Silva is a genuinely good boxer. And genuinely, let's be completely real here, the reason Anderson Silva lost this fight is because he's 47 years old. Because Anderson Silva, around round five to round six really slowed down and you can see it and his his head movement started to fail him and his hand speed was slowing down and ultimately it was the age jake did a good job of capitalizing on it he saw it happening and went okay got my chance i i found i found that the fight was quite close personally i kind of if 10-8 round is mandatory because of the knockdown in the last round I don't know how boxing judging necessarily works, but if that was in fact the case where the last round had to be judged a 10-8 because of the knockdown, then I, f I would find it a fair scorecard to have Jake winning by one point because I had it 50-50 before the knockdown. I thought Anderson had won four rounds, Jake had won three, and then in the last, in the eighth round, that uh, Jake was winning it handily, but I didn't think it was a 10-8. Uh, Anderson was still hanging in there, but uh, obviously, if the if the knockdown is a obvious, if the knockdown is a mandatory 10-8, then you give it to Jake by one point. That was my opinion. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, it was one of those close fights that it's hard to be mad at the decision either way. Jake made a good account of himself, as well as, like, they were great sportsmen about it. Anderson was as adorable as always. Yeah, it's just a strange phenomenon. And then you go, like, okay, well, where does he go now? Because 
Jake's probably going to continue calling out retired MMA fighters, but really I think it would serve him much better to go, okay, now that I've beaten this guy, who else is in a similar level but is a current pro uh, in boxing that I can actually like genuinely earn the respect of now the boxing community as well? Because you just beat a guy who made Chavez Jr. look silly. So... You look at, okay, well, who's Chavez Jr. been fighting? Like, what's that general level around the boxing sphere? If you want to make sure you have somebody that you have a really good chance of beating, find somebody around that level um, that is a respected figure in boxing. Um, obviously, don't fight Chavez Jr. because he's also another old man, and Anderson already beat him. So, you know, the old combat sports math thing where people will just go oh well you beat anderson who beat him so of course you'd beat him you want to have somebody you still want to have some mystery where people aren't totally sure like oh well, of course he can beat him it's like oh man that's an interesting test for jake like he was pretty good last time let's see what he does you know that's the sort of vibe that you want giving advice to a guy that would never listen to advice from someone like me but that's what i think should happen next for him and i think would be the most interesting thing to happen next for him Let's move on to the Calvin Cater versus Arnold Allen card because it was two weeks ago and there's some interesting stuff on it, but uh, mainly it's just sad. It's just a bummer because the main event was Calvin Cater and Arnold Allen and we didn't actually get to see how that fight would play out because Calvin Cater's knee exploded. He pivoted weird on it and tore his knee apart and tried to tried to stay in it and ultimately, and immediately in the beginning of the second round, his knee just buckles again. Calvin Cater's knee is just fucked now, and it's such a bummer because this was a genuinely very interesting fight. And Arnold Allen came out hard in the first round, and Cal it's not that hard to win a first round against Calvin Cater. He tends to start a little bit slow, but his toughness and resilience and like the fact that his power stays through the entire fight, especially in a five-round fight, it stays through the entire fight. It would have been very interesting to see what kind of lasting power Arnold Allen would have against that. And um, it's just a bummer that, like, the top of 145, and honestly, 145 in general, just seems to be really cursed with injuries right now. It's kind of nuts. And it's, yeah, the, I mean, the UFC generally, there's been tons of, like, injuries all over the place that have been ending fights prematurely and just leaving us with a nice big question mark of, like, well, that told us nothing. Um, so that one sucks, especially for Calvin, because like he's had a rough go of it. I mean, he's absorbed more strikes in his in, in his career than Ar than uh, Andre Arlovsky has in his entire career. Andre Arlovsky started fighting, I believe, in the year two thousand, and uh, Calvin Cater has absorbed more strikes now. Over four hundred of them were against Max Holloway, but still, it. it <laughs> It's just a tough break for a guy who has been asked and has proceeded to just show toughness more than anything else for so long. And it would be it's a bummer for him to catch a break like this, especially in such a like just a tough guy way where he's like he blows out his knee so badly that he like can't stand on it and he collapses and then gets off the stool in the second round and goes, "Nope, I'm fine." <laughs> and then the first thing he does with that leg, it just goes like, "Sorry, buddy." We're actually not fine. <sighs> but um, moving on from that fight, 
We got Tim Means and Max Griffin. Um, really, it's just it's cool to see Max Griffin really maturing and uh, becoming a little more intelligent with his his physicality and figuring out how to really use it in the way he should be using it. Um, Max Griffin in the past has been a little bit of a floundery guy that didn't seem to have a lot of really good direction. It's cool to see him getting some success and really like putting it together. It's a little bit later in age, but it's cool to see him putting it together. Um, especially against a real test, which Tim means still manages to be a hard test for a lot of guys. Uh, the dirty bird has always been just a savvy, like gritty dude that doesn't make it easy on you. Yeah, it's cool to see. Um, and obviously it's a bummer for Tim Means, but to be brutally honest, I don't know how much time Tim Means should still stay in the game. Uh, he's been in a long time, and he's pretty much always is in wars. Even when fights he wins, he tends to get beat up. So at this point, I feel like it's just kind of a passion thing. Hopefully it's not a money troubles thing. That would suck. Uh, next thing we got is Waldo Cortez Acosta and Jared Vandera. <laughs> the thing I remember the most from this fight, funny enough, is nothing actually about the fight. It's, uh, I believe it was Michael Bisping pointing out that Jared's corner said, find the big Waldo, or where's the big Waldo? <laughs> it just made a where's Waldo joke. Man, that card, Dom and Bisping were just talking mad shit and making jokes the entire time. It was a bit of a mess. But yeah, Waldo and Jared, just being sloppy, gassy heavyweights, doing sloppy, gassy heavyweight things, and Waldo was the slightly less gassy one. Uh, Josh Fremd and Treshawn Gore. Treshawn Gore is the dude from the Ultimate Fighter season with uh, Volkanovski and Brian Ortega um, that did not win. I believe he ended up not getting to be in the final due to an injury or something. It's funny. The UFC actually signed like a ton of people from that season, including like regardless wins, losses, etc. Like I think the Ultimate Fighter show now serves more like if you win, then you get a good contract. And if you don't win, then you might still get signed, but you won't get a good contract. As I, I believe what it's kind of turned into, as well as the quality of that season is very much in question when you see Ricky Tercios doing weird shit and being kind of bad. And he was the winner for the 135ers. I like seeing Brian Battle be good, though. I like Brian Battle a lot. Be stoked to see more of him at 170. I believe that's where he went in 170 now. Uh, but he's fun, and he's like seems like a cool guy. So, but Treshawn Gore is um, he's big, he's black, he hits really hard, and is just like an absolute force physically. And he kind of just powered through this like guillotine attempt and just went like. No, nah, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna let go. Do it like squirm as you will, rotate as you will. I'm not letting go. I'm just gonna rip your head off. And he got the submission pretty, just like handily, just due to sheer physicality. Not that he's bad by any means, um, but this one was definitely like you could see the gap in physical ability in this fight. The 
fight I care about the most on this card by far is Dustin Jacoby and Khalil Roundtree Jr. I liked Khalil Roundtree and heard about him um, and thought his story was really awesome before he fought Gokan Saki. And then after he fought Gokan Saki and knocked him out, I was like, oh man, this guy's awesome. I'm going to pay attention to him. He gets knocked out by Johnny Walker, has like a personal like revelation and goes like, I'm going to move to Thailand for like two years or however long it was. I know it was for a year, I believe. He moved to Thailand, just trained nothing but Muay Thai the entire time, just straight Muay Thai the whole time, and then came back and fought Eric Anders and looked like a completely different person. Like, was full Thai style. Like, if you're not familiar, like, so Thai style that he looked like he had this Sagat stance from Street Fighter. Like, front knee bouncing, hands up, kind of elbows down, hands up. Like, he was full, full, like, traditional Muay Thai stance and completely flustered Eric Anders and was like, just made him not really sure what to do. Just pieced him up. And I was like, oh man, this guy is like, not only is he like, has a cool story with how he lost weight by training and then became a fighter and all that. Like, he just has an interesting story because like, he went from that to like, going to Thailand. And then now he has, like, he's kind of integrating his, all the striking he learned there with actually with normal MMA stuff where like I believe his last camp he didn't even work striking any more than just working the bag and was just doing grappling like he's such an interesting case and uh him and he and uh Dustin Jacoby had a great fight it was genuinely the best thing on the card and was a great time and those two guys just really put it on each other and Jacoby with the volume and Roundtree with heavy, heavy power. And funny thing about how Khalil Roundtree was fighting is around in the second round, when Roundtree started to get a little more tired and he wasn't able to throw with quite as much heat, he kind of backed off a little bit and stopped blitzing where like he was kind of keeping his feet under him and he wasn't blitzing forward as hard when he was trying to attack and trying to like get Jacoby back on the back foot, he was a lot more conservative with the thing, the movement he would choose to do and the strikes he would choose to throw. And he was being more strategic, throwing more leg kicks, things like that. And ultimately it actually, his own awareness that he was starting to get tired actually made him a better fighter, actually made him more effective against Jacoby where he was, able to capitalize on opportunities that otherwise he might already be out of position for with the way he was fighting before. So I am, as well as Jacoby himself also looked really good. Like he looked the best he's ever looked. Um, just mixing up the, the volume as well as the occasional power shots, like just keeping the pressure on and like seeing good opportunities and, capitalizing on them like whenever Roundtree would load up one of those like when he was ducking under the big like haymakers that Roundtree would occasionally throw he would just duck it just enough that he wasn't out of position and was able to fire back with combinations 
like Roundtree would fire like a big winging overhand right, and then Jacoby would just duck it and then catch him with a tight like shovel uppercut with his right hand. It was just good stuff. One of the best light heavyweight fights I've seen in, at like you know at the bottom of the top fifteen in a while that doesn't involve any grappling. Um, let's be real here. Both of these guys have had a lot of trouble with grapplers in the past, and we'll see if that continues. Like, I'd love to see Khalil Roundtree make a run at the top 10, but, um, you know, it begs the question, is either of these guys going to be able to beat, like, an Ian Kutalaba or someone like that that just can ragdoll people? That's the biggest question for either of their major progression forward in the next you know, in the near future. And I hope that they can really show that they've evolved and they're not just strikers who can't handle the grappling. And both of these guys' stock goes up from this fight. It really bums me out that they didn't win fight of the night and that it was just like performance bonuses or whatever because both guys actually, they really deserved to get a bonus for being like genuinely the best fight on the card by a lot. And kind of saving the card from being mostly throwaways. Thanks to the main event just completely falling on flat on its face. Next we have Phil Hawes and Roman Delize. Man, Dan Mergliata really made the end of this fight kind of silly and unnecessary. Because Roman, after Roman Delize was taken down, he transitioned from holding full guard real tight and throwing those 12 to 6 elbows to the top of Phil Hawes' head. He transitioned from that once Phil Haas wanted to posture up to the armbar. And then when he lost the armbar, he yanked, he switched immediately to trying to get a knee bar. And he kind of yanked it weirdly, like kind of laterally, and ended up just twisting Phil Haas' knee to bits. And Phil got up and then immediately stumbled down to the ground because his knee was in pieces. And then... As Roman was, like, starting to go after him to, like, finish him, Dan Mergliata, like, gets in between them and then goes, oh, wait, never mind, and then backs up to, like, let them continue fighting. <laughs> and then Roman Delize does what Roman Delize does and goes back to just kind of cautiously striking, even though now he has an opponent that can't move, you know, that has, like, severely impaired movement. He just goes back to being, like, super cautious. Now, you could say, well, give him the benefit of the doubt. He doesn't know how bad the knee is. Maybe Phil Haas is fine and we'll just, like, counter him and he's afraid of getting knocked out, blah, blah, blah. Or you could be a logical person and be like, he was holding that knee when it was torn to pieces. He felt that thing snap. And he's the one that, like... After Phil Hawes, like, separated from him, he, he, like, held his hands and was like, oh, shit, are you good? Like, Roman knew how bad that shit was, and then it was still, like, hyper-cautious until, you know, he finally went, like, okay, I should actually, like, just go ahead and try and throw and finish this guy. Got the knockout. Did a good job. Just, like, an entire minute and a half, or almost a minute and a half of Roman Delize kind of, like cautiously not finishing a guy on one leg it was just weird feeling it was awkward 
And it's like Dan Mergliata had every right to just call that shit. And awkwardly, it's not the first time he's awkwardly like went to stop a fight and then stopped. And then backed off and went, oh wait, never mind, go ahead. And just completely disrupted the rhythm of what was going on. Andre Arlovsky versus Rogerio de Lima. Andre Arlovsky was just too slow and got caught while they were exchanging in the pocket and then got RNC'd on the ground. And Andre is, you know, some fights he'll really show his age, and this is one of them. That's really all there is to say about that fight, unfortunately. Next we have Joseph Holmes and Junyon Park, the Iron Turtle. I, I love this guy. Um, he's just, he's, he's genuinely funny looking. He looks like a turtle and he fights just like a tough dude. Like he doesn't move his head because he can just take punches and he has good grappling. One of the, my favorite thing that happened in this fight, um, he gets the back, back body lock and then in full, in true iron turtle form, he kind of holds the back body lock as tight as he can and then just lifts his legs off the ground. He like bends his knees up and he kind of into the back of Joseph Holmes like thighs a little bit that kind of help like the knees bend, but really it's like he just picks up his legs so that all the weight is on him like holding the body lock. And then Holmes just kind of falls to the ground because he's like, oh, fuck, all of a sudden he's got this like really heavy, you know, he's got this 185er just hanging off of his waist. <laughs> it pulls him to the ground and then um, ended up work. Uh, Park ended up working his way to mount and then just starts pounding and then they kind of transition from the back to mount to back to mount. And ultimately it was just a matter of time until park either got the ground and pound win or an RNC and he ended up getting the rear naked choke. So always got to love seeing uh, the iron turtle do well, just cause he's, he's cool and likable and has a fun style. Chase Hooper versus Steve Garcia. Chase Hooper really man like he was he really showed his youth in this fight he got caught early and often and a few times he would just get caught go lay on his back be like all right come on let's grapple in the guard and steve garcia just kept letting him up and then catching him again knocking him back down again and realistically herb dean could have stopped it in the second to last knockdown but just kind of let it go and yeah chase hooper just got kind of just got blasted on the feet and it's one of those classic like jujitsu guy issues of like you have this great weapon on the ground but you have to get it there and unless you have a really good way to mix in wrestling or just like threaten your wrestling it's gonna be a problem when you're facing bangers like somebody like steve garcia where he he doesn't have a massive toolbox but he can bang and clearly that's all he needed for this one. Cody Durden uh, versus Carlos Mota. Uh, it's pretty simple. Just Cody really just wrestle fucked him. Cody Durden just was able to, from like halfway through the first round, took him down and was just like, oh, I can just like control him and, and pound him out here. Or not pound him out, but like control him and just like, land easy land strikes and just keep him on the ground and like just dominate the wrestling and that's what he did and it's just one of those like slow just grind a guy 
kind of fights. Um, and then the first one was of the night for the Cato versus Allen card was Christian Rodriguez and Josh Weems. And unfortunately, despite the funniness of his name, Josh Weems was not ready. He, go, you know, the long story short, goes for a takedown, gets Anaconda. Bummer. Um, yeah. Hopefully in the future he gets better and we get to hear the name Weems on, in um, a higher level context because, just because I think it would be funny. Now let's talk about the more recent card, the one that happened this last Saturday. Marina Rodriguez and Amanda Lemos. That fight was the headliner for this last fight night card that God knows how many people actually watched, but I went ahead and did it. And um, man, it was kind of a simple fight in that Lemos was just more more well-rounded and was stronger and the harder hitter. And that I could get more into the technicality of it, but she just seemed to be just all o- all over, kind of everywhere, just like grittier, more powerful, tougher, usual stuff. And then after winning by just like big fucking punches against the fence, she like runs off and then like wants to do, you know, the sprint around the cage yelling thing, like kind of trips and like there was a frame there where it almost looked like she hurt her knee because of course... Why wouldn't you hurt your knee? Everyone's hurting their knees right now. Um, but yeah, it's the gray hair thing. It's just like she looks like a, as, uh, as my lady said, she looks like a, uh, she looks like an evil stepmother, stepmother like Disney villain, <laughs> the Amanda Lemos. But, uh, yeah, she just proved to be better and is, solidly in the top five and we'll see where it goes from here women's 115 is genuinely interesting in the top five so we'll see what her options are as far as like who's actually available who's not injured things like that because it's like maybe that would be a great fight for rose to come back as like a feeler to see like okay how are you mentally are you in the game still have you recovered mentally from that last fight? You know, all that sort of stuff. Is your coaching on point? Have they realized what they did wrong? That sort of thing. I could rant about that stupid fucking fight between um, Rose and Carla. Like, I probably have done it in multiple podcasts already, but uh, pretty much every time I talk, I think about Women's 115, I think about that debacle of a fight. But um, let's move on before we can, uh, before that makes us sad. Uh, Neil Magny and D-Rod was kind of the, the people's main event of this one. It was the one that everybody was talking about, was Neil Magny and Danny Rodriguez. Danny Rodriguez got this fight based off of what I considered to be a bit of a robbery against the leech. It was one of those close decisions that is definitely a lot more leaning towards justifying it as a robbery than most. It bummed me the fuck out, um, especially with how the leech got super screwed that entire card that he was on last. But D Rod is a fun fighter. He's a good boxer. There's a lot of cool stuff he does. So it's hard to argue against seeing him against stiffer competition just from a curiosity standpoint. And man, Neil Magny is a. I, I thought this coming in 
that Neil Magny was going to be a bad matchup for him because Neil Magny has that like quicksand clinch where people like he has a really really strong clinch as far as technical technically he's not necessarily the strongest dude ever he's being you know six foot three in that division you know he's not necessarily the strongest guy in the world but his clinch is absolutely on point technically and seeing him fight that fight is very like thinking about him fighting that fight with D-Rod is very like well, is D- does D-Rod have the tools to keep to stay out of the clinch with Neil Magny? Is D-Rod going to fall into it and spend too much time in the clinch with Neil Magny? And ultimately, the first round, that's exactly what happened, is he would either be out on the end of range eating kicks and long jabs, or he would blitz in too far and end up in the clinch and getting kneed and elbowed and controlled. And then in the second round, as Magni actually slowed a little bit, lost a little bit of strength, and more importantly, D-Rod became a lot more intelligent with his distance management. D-Rod started measuring himself a lot more and being really smart about how far away he was and not blitzing in like he was previously. And um, it really worked wonders for him. And he started really like piecing Magni up in the second round. He was eating shots, but D Rod definitely won that round. And then in the third round, it became clear to Magni that he needed to force the issue. And he started initiating the grappling as much as he could and getting things, even if it was just trying to initiate a clinch so he could start making some grappling happen. Like, he just knew that he had to close the distance. And. But once he did, he started to be able to make things happen, was able to hold D-Rod down for various lengths of time. And then after having D-Rod down at the bottom of the mount for a little bit, as D-Rod starts to slip out, Magni is way up over top of his shoulders and is able to grab sort of like an anaconda grip. And then as he drags D-Rod back down to the ground using the front headlock grip, switches to Darce, gets the finish. And, uh, yeah, Neil Magny just continuing to prove, like, if you don't have a really, really strong plan for him, and if you can't keep him from initiating clinches and working his game, it's going to be a bad night. Derek Minner and Shailan Nerdanbike. It's a name that is very, very difficult to say. I'm sorry. He's from from China, I believe. And, um, yeah, sorry about that. But the fight with Derek Minner, in which Derek Minner lands a nice body kick really early on, and then as his foot reaches the ground again, his knee explodes. And then he goes, oh, shit, my knee exploded. But did it, though? I'm not sure. I need to really know. So then he throws another body kick with the same leg. All seems fine until he puts his foot on the ground again. And then it's like his foot touches the ground again, and then he collapses, being like, oh fuck, yes, my knee actually has exploded. But I uh, weirdly have, I weirdly have a lot of respect for him just being like, throws the first kick, puts his foot down, goes, ah shit. And then just goes, well, let's be sure. <laughs> Instead of trying to milk it, he just goes, 
if this thing's fucked, I need to know for sure. And just throws another one. Um, and then just like collapses and gets finished. Uh, so that one, it, it, it doesn't tell us anything. We don't know how that fight would have gone had they actually had to ha got to have a fight. And what it tells us more than anything is that 145 is cursed. And people were, are just going to keep getting injured there so that we don't have any like certainty about the division. And honestly, it's cursed in a lot of ways because if you think about it, um, our old pal Zabit, Zabit the uh, violent Abe Lincoln, he had a bunch of medical problems before leaving the UFC. And uh, yeah, just the top 10 especially, but really 145 just seems to be kind of cursed right now. It's a little crazy. Then Tagir Ulanbekov and Nate Maness. Tagir just does the Russian smash thing and snatches up an opportunistic ghillie as they get back up towards the feet. Switches the high the high elbow, which seemed to be not quite tight enough, to just a good old power ghillie and just yanks it. Damn near takes Nate off his feet and gets the finish uh, pretty damn quick just from Russian grappling. And then on the mic he goes like, He's interviewed by DC and just goes like, hey, DC, like, look how good we're doing. I'm an AKA guy. And you go, ah, gotcha. You're one of them. Grant Dawson and Marco Madsen. This is a fun fight. Um, but it also is just like figuring out like the realization that Marco Madsen is very one dimensional. And Grant Dawson also made him look old, um, where basically once he got Marco Madsen on his back, Madsen didn't seem to really know what to do, didn't really have a lot of options, and didn't really know how to use his legs to create space to get himself out. He was just, that Greco-Roman background is just really not ideal for MMA, and this fight showed it dramatically, as well as it just made Marco Madsen seem a little old, because as time went on, he just got more and more tired and more labored, and Grant Dawson looked good despite missing weight. Now, of course, short notice... Can't take too much away from him, but still, uh, missing white's always a bad look. But he owned it like a man. He was like, I'm not going to make any excuses, but I, you know, I promise I'm not going to miss weight again. And called out Tony Ferguson, which is a interesting pick. He probably won't get it, but, um, interesting pick on who to call out. Uh, also Grant Dawson, his face looks like the entire thing is cauliflower ear. Like his, like his, like his eyebrows and his orbital and like he just looks like he's just made of cauliflower ear Miranda Maverick and Shanna Young uh, striking was even and then the second Maverick take landed the first takedown it just snowballed from there and she was just able to get takedowns and hold grappling the whole time the whole rest of the fight and you're like well that's a big hole in Shanna Young's game and then she called out Meatball, which, hey, we'll see how this next fight for Meatball goes, but that's a fun call out. Um, a couple of sh shorter, just like stocky, tough girls just getting after it. Obviously, I feel she's probably making that call out because she wants a stylistic advantage because she probably thinks that Meatball's grappling is not that good. And that she could probably do the wrestle thing like she did to, uh, like she did to Shannon Young. Uh, Mario Batista and Benito Lopez. Lopez is a dude from Oroville 
who I don't know if he still does, but has trained at Team Alpha Male. Um, but whenever I hear Oroville, I go, especially because he was announced as fighting out of Oroville, which makes me go, are you actually training at a gym in Oroville? Have you left Alpha Male to just train in Oroville? Because that seems like a bad idea, if that is in fact the case. Um, he also came in looking real soft, like he didn't do the work. Uh, he missed weight by, he missed weight at like, I believe, 138 and a half and just looked soft, just looked like he didn't do the work. And then Mario Batista came in shredded and also like just technically better, pre heavily pressured. And once he got him towards the cage, he started like throwing heavy body hooks. They sounded like John Lineker landing a punch. It was pretty awesome. And then just grabs a double leg. And then Lopez just didn't look like he had any answers on the ground. And eventually the finish came by a reverse triangle armbar. Pollyanna Viana and Ginny Frey. Viana used an intercepting knee to the body as Frey was pressuring. And then followed it up with like a pretty tight left hook in their immediate next like rhythm step back together again. Landed a nice left hook. And then Viana just blitzed with hooks and... Frey was already stiff by the time she hit the ground. It was like a board falling over. It was brutal. Ludwig Shalinian and Johnny Munoz. Shalinian did what Shalinian does, like pressure with his feet and play the tough guy while being pieced up and outperformed in pretty much every phase of the fight. Uh, Johnny Munoz looked good, generally, and he should against a guy like Shalinian who looks like he is should be a better fighter than he is because he just leans on his toughness but then doesn't lean on his toughness with the intention to throw he just kind of pressures forward gets hit and then goes why didn't i win i looked like a tough guy um yeah oof. that's a guy from that season of the ultimate fighter that ricky tercios came out of and they had a fight where ricky just like pieced him the fuck up and he just kind of did nothing <laughs> he just kind of walked forward and went, hey, why aren't you punching me harder or something? It was weird. But yeah, that's just kind of who Ludwig Shalinian is. And you go, why are you in the UFC? Oh, yes, because you are cheap. Uh, Candelario versus Jake Hadley. Hadley had great hands. Mixed in body work, both starting and ending combos with body hooks and uppercuts, as well as landing hard thigh kicks to both the inside and outside to start and end combos. Clearly, he had a really good boxing base based on his stance, and uh, also he was using very boxing things where he would use like a shoulder roll and including like lifting his elbow in a way in something that Jack Slack has lovingly called the hillbilly shoulder roll in the past, where you kind of raise your elbow to intercept a strike and ends up hurting the dude's hand if he hits it on the point. Um, just has a great boxing base, and he really like he only really had his body on his left side as his vulnerability because it was open to body kicks but they didn't add up enough quickly enough as Jake was easily doubling the volume and power of Candelario's strikes uh, eventually Carlos Candelario shot a takedown and Jake used a strategic oil check mid-roll and locked up a triangle elbowed the shit out of Carlos's head before changing angles and tightening up the triangle and winning the, and getting the submission win um, really, it's just like, watch this fight. There's some great, great technical striking on it. And then uh, really just Jake Hadley got the better end of the scramble. 
as the the grappling started. So yeah, watch that shit to see some like really just cool striking stuff. Uh, Tamiris Vidal and Ramona Pachual was just sloppy mediocrity ended by a jumping switch knee to the liver by Vidal, which is a rare one. You don't see the you don't see knees to the liver very much, but that one was clearly what that was, and it was direct and just shut shut the fight down, ended it, and that's the end. Uh, that was the first fight of that card, and that's all I got because. In a couple of days, I'm gonna do be doing a, watching a lot of tape, and I'm gonna be sorting through a lot of opinions and really trying to f- make myself put down a lot of concise, intelligent thoughts about the upcoming UFC pay-per-view with Israel Adesanya and Alex Pereira and everything accompanying accompanying it, including Weili Zhang basically being given the 115 belt again. Yeah, it's it's there's a lot on that card to talk about and I want to do a good job so I want to make it its entire own podcast just for that which I'll do in a couple of days. So it'll be two podcasts this week and uh hopefully people will be interested enough to listen. We'll see. But uh I've had a bunch of people already ask my opinion on Adesanya versus Pereira, so Hopefully I can put together a really intelligent assessment of what I think about that fight, and we'll see how wrong I am. But without further ado, I'll be done for today. To close us out with a little BMX flavor, God bless Julian Ortega's fakie grinds.